There's some modern praise songs that are uh, written as if, you know, God were our boyfriend. You are my strength when I am weak. You are my all in all. You're my joy. You are the best even, one song says. And in fact, we sing these types of songs here in this church. And while some of the songs might receive some legitimate uh, constructive criticism, there is something good about these types of songs. You are my all in all. There's something good about saying, you know, you God, you Lord, you Jesus Christ are indeed the best. Because it captures something of the fact that our entire lives ought to revolve around this Jesus Christ. And in the book of Exodus, even this morning, we see that here for the people of God, their whole entire lives are supposed to revolve around the fact that he is their God and they are his people. And they become, or he is their everything. And you could even say that God, you know, we as we were to... See, God, we would say, you had me, you had us at hello when you created us, Lord. Last week, we learned that God will be his people's sustenance. As the people were wandering through the desert in the book of Exodus, God provided for them in his grace. Well, today we see that God will also be his people's protection, his people's glory, and their prudence or wisdom. Our passage today is in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 through the end of chapter 18. I invite you to turn there with me now. If you're using one of those black Bibles in front of you, you can be found on page 59. I invite you to turn there with me right now. In the book of Exodus, God, as you know, is forming for himself a people for his glory. And as he does so, he brings them out of slavery under Egypt. And about 400 years prior to the Exodus, the event of the Exodus, God had brought the descendants of Abraham... Isaac, and then Jacob, down to Egypt to protect them from a famine. And after 400 plus years, God had multiplied their people into a multitude, just as he had promised Abraham many hundreds of years before. This is part of the promises that God had given to Abraham, that I will make you into a people, a multitude. He also promised that he would give them their very own land, which is what the Exodus is very much about. He also promised there that one from their line would be a blessing to the world that brings salvation to the ends of the earth. And we know that that's fulfilled in Jesus. But here in the Exodus, God is determined to fulfill his promises and bring his people to their new land. But there's a problem. The king of Egypt thought that the king of heaven's plan was a threat to his own. As he looked over his own kingdom, he saw that the Hebrew people were growing to be like the sand of the seashore... And fearing that they would rise up and fight against him and overthrow him, he made a preemptive move, a strike, and enslaved them, trying to wipe them out eventually, and all of their future generations by killing all the Hebrew babies, or at least trying to. Eventually, God moved to judge Pharaoh and the Egyptians for enslaving the Hebrew people, for killing them, and for refusing to listen to God. And so in chapter 7 to 13 of the book of Exodus, we see God bringing plagues of judgment against Pharaoh and the people there. And this is nothing less than a battle of the king of Egypt, and then uh, he fights against the very king of heaven. And the battle here climaxes in the Red Sea, where God parts the water, and Israel walks on dry ground. But Pharaoh, as as he's given into sin, as he's enraptured by his own sin, and hostility against people, he chases after them. And God sends the seas back on top of Pharaoh, his horsemen, and they were destroyed. 
We would think then that everything is over. But you got to remember that there is still, or that this is within the first few days of their escape, and then they still have hundreds of miles to their final destination. And on top of that, they're hungry. They've got to fend for themselves, and they have to learn how to function as their own people, apart from the hundreds of years that they had lived comfortably, perhaps, uh, until Egypt enslaved them. They were living comfortably under Egypt's rule. Last week, we saw that their joy turned to despair as they faced what laid in front of them, the vast desert. They're hungry, and they're thirsty, and eventually they complain, and they grumble, and they blame Moses, they blame Aaron, eventually they blame and accuse the Almighty God... We're saying that just as your hand was, just as your hand struck fair in the Egyptians, we would have been better off had we died with them in Egypt. But in God's kindness, even though they grumbled and sinned against Him, God nevertheless answers their complaints with grace, with food and drink, because He was determined once again to fulfill all of His promises. And as God fulfills His promises, the people of Israel are to learn that they ought to be wholly dependent upon God. All of life was to revolve around him. Just as the planets revolve around the sun, so God's people were to make Christ their center. Today we see that the Lord is first his people's protection, second, his people's praise, and third, his people's prudence. Let's look first at the fact that the Lord was to be his people's protection. Look at chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. They absolutely need protection. Right, once again, we forget that they, uh, we forget how far they had to walk. It's not like they had to walk to Roland Heights, for example. They had to walk hundreds of miles. And imagine walking with your little ones. You know, there are millions of Israelites at this point in time, the people of Israel, walking hundreds of miles, getting to their final destination. Imagine having to walk with your grandparents who were ailing in health. Imagine having to walk with the handicapped, the physically handicapped there. And on top of that, they face dangerous people standing in their way and dangerous people actually in the land. And today we see that one of these dangerous peoples, they actually attack the people of God. So imagine the emotion here of fear as you're making your way to the promised land. Look there in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. We saw that they were hungering, that their, their physical existence was suffering last week through you know, hunger and thirst. Here we see that their physical existence is at stake as Amalek comes to fight them. It's interesting. Amalek is not just another desert dude. He is actually the grandson of Esau. So when it says that Amalek came out, he's talking about the tribe that goes by the name of Amalek. Remember, this is hundreds of years after, the, after Amalek was born. This is the chief uh, tribe of Edom or Esau, the tribe of Amalek. So we have the descendants of Esau attacking the descendants of Jacob. You see that sibling rivalry stretching hundreds of years, even here into the Exodus, where the seed of the serpent wants to destroy the seed that follows the righteousness of God here. In terms of what Amalek did, Deuteronomy 25, you don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy 25 sheds some light. It says that Amalek attacked you, that is the Israelites, and cut off your tail. That is, those who were lagging behind you, and you did, and they did not fear God. We know the period of the judges that the, uh, the Amalekites made their living by plundering the people along the way. So most likely here what they're, doing, what they're trying to do is control the trade routes, and uh, they made their living off of seizing other people's uh, treasures and things like that. And that's what seems to be going on here. So they 
they go in the back and attack Israel at the rear, cutting off those who are lagging behind. That is, those who are weak. They're preying on the stragglers of Israel. Moses' response there, look in verse 9. Here he responds swiftly and says to a man named Joshua, Choose for his men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill with the, with the staff of God in my hand. This is the first time we hear of Joshua. He eventually becomes Moses' assistant, as we'll see in a few weeks. And in the book of Joshua, there we see that Joshua is the one charged to lead his, God's people into the promised land. But if you follow along from verse 10, you see what, what Joshua does. He goes into battle with Amalek. Moses, Aaron, and a man named Hur go up onto a hill. And it says there in verse 11, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. The problem here, what's going on is that Moses gets tired. You think all he has to do is hold up his hands and then they win. But he gets tired. Look there in verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Verse 13, there you see the conclusion. Joshua, after uh, Aaron and Hur come alongside Moses, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. You know, some people say that what Amalek is doing here is that he's praying, he's lifting up his hands. We know that that, that, does, that, that prayer posture does include lifting up the hands. But there's nothing in the passage that says actually that he, what he's doing is praying. Besides that, the, the passage emphasizes here the thing that is in his hand, or the thing that is in his hands. If it could very well be that he's holding up the staff with both of his hands. Uh, it's interesting there, as he says there that, uh, you know, he says, I'm going to go up onto a hill and take the staff of God in my hand, singular. But later on, the emphasis there is that both of his hands, plural, are being lifted up. The emphasis here is that Moses' hand as he holds the staff of God, represents the hand of God. This is the same staff that God had turned into a snake that defeated Pharaoh's snake, the sign of divinity in the Egyptian culture. It's the same staff that turned the water into blood as judgment. It's the same staff that struck the rock, which then produced water for the people. So here, taking up the staff of God was to acknowledge, acknowledge God's decisive role and sovereign power in the Exodus as a whole. So imagine the view. All of Israel is battling, or sorry, Joshua and capable men are battling, but all of Israel perhaps could see Moses, Aaron and Hur standing on top of the hill overlooking the battle, and the staff is raised even higher. As long as the staff of God is raised high, God's decisive role was properly acknowledged symbolically, and then God's army prevailed. The symbol of God's power over all there, God was teaching them, that the only reason that they could have victory over the Amalekites was because God was fighting for them. Giving them the victory. It says there that Joshua overwhelmed Amalek as Amalek attacked the weak and disabled. So Joshua and Israel's army made weak the army of Amalek and they were overwhelmed. It, it, it really is a beautiful scene, isn't it? You have Moses, who needs help, who's dependent upon Aaron and her to lift up his hands, and above his hands is the staff of God. And it says there that he held that staff steady there in verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and her held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other side. So his hands were steady or faithful 
to lift up the symbol of the sovereignty of God, even against those who attack the people of God. Beautiful scene here. And here the fact that it is God who has the victory here is clarified in verse 14. God says, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. What is fascinating that is that this account may be the memorial that Exodus, uh, sorry, that uh, Moses went on to write, the book of Exodus. And it was to be read to Joshua and by implication to all of Israel. And it's clear that Joshua certainly is not the great protector and victor, but God is. In this battle, the staff of God once again is overall. This is the battle that the Lord charged Joshua to lead, of course, through Moses. This is the battle that the Lord had won. And even the memory of Amalek would be taken care of by God the Lord. If you look there in 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this memorial in a book and recite in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And in the next verse, who is celebrated in the presence of the people? It says there that Moses built an altar and called it, not Joshua or Moses is my banner, but the Lord is my banner. Another way to translate this is saying that the Lord is his signal pole uh, or his standard. You think of a flag being carried on a standard. And so what you do is you plant the flag pole and it's around that pole that the Lord's people would gather So it's the rallying point to remember that the Lord is my banner or my signal pole. The Lord will have have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So ultimately it is the sovereign Lord that was to be seen as the standard on which Israel relied and gathered around. You know that Moses certainly wrote the first five books of Old Testament as history. And it was to serve as a record of God's dealings with his people. If you just think about that for a moment, right? Moses is writing after the Exodus occurred, before the people were going into the Promised Land. So imagine later on, as many years, many decades go back, go forward, and imagine you guys are the, the, the people of Israel, and Moses is reciting this this battle to his people as they are about to go into the Promised Land and make war with others according to God's command. One wonders, you know, if Joshua, for example, as he's getting ready to go into the Promised Land, one wonders. If he had the picture of Moses' staff raised high above the hill as he was charged in Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. I like to think that he actually did have this vision, this account in his mind as he led the people of God and called the people of God to do what they did not do. Uh, later on friends just as god was for the people of israel so he is for the church's protection as well and it is in our greatest fear that he shows up as the sovereign lord now certainly we as christians are not called to take up swords and to take a piece of real estate but the real estate that god is preparing for us is in heaven as god has designed and built a mansion for us in heaven but to, Christian, but to you, Christian, he is still your protector. How encouraged should we be as seeing Moses' arms being lifted up, his hands made steady to hold up the staff of God, the symbol of his sovereignty over battle? Now, if you're like me, you turn on the news, you check the news maybe multiple times a day, 
and you see that there are terrible things going around in the world, and you wonder, terrible things against Christians, and you may wonder, is God really his people's protector? Is God really his people's protector? And to answer that question, if we're, if you are like me and perhaps, or like others, you're perhaps tempted to give in to fear and to think that maybe your life is at stake, if you stand for the Lord with your boss or with your coworkers or with your very own family, you know perhaps that they're hostile, here you wonder, you know, is God going to be my protector? Is the sovereign Lord going to show up in their friend in your fear? All you have to do is look to Jesus Christ. All you have to do is look to Christ and see how God and his sovereignty had protected him. It didn't mean that he was saved or preserved from all suffering. But we know that the Lord certainly delivered him from ultimate suffering. So we say, what exactly did the Lord do? Well, we know that the Bible says that our greatest enemy is not flesh and blood, but there is a spiritual battle being waged. You look to Ephesians chapter 6 to see that. And we know that Christ here, what he did on the cross is he waged war against them. And even though he tasted death, we know that death could not hold him in the end. We know that sin could not hold him in the end. And it's not that Jesus did not fear in a godly sense. He feared in a godly sense, not in in a sinfully anxious way or a sinfully worried way. But we know that in the garden he pled that if another way was possible, that the Lord would take this cup of wrath from him. But yet he endured the cross for the joy set before him. We see that Jesus Christ went, Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for the sins of all who would ever turn from their sins and believe on him. And that was no easy task for him. And as he tasted death, as he was buried three days and then was raised from the dead, we know that he won. Victory was won. And God's faithfulness and his sovereignty over the very things that can threaten our lives the most was, were defeated. As Colossians 1.15 says, through his death on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So the curse of sin was to be death. As we know that Adam and Eve, they sinned, and we as sinners, we are born with their nature, and we actually transgress the law of God, and so the curse of sin is death. And that's the fear that we all face. Jesus undoes that. What, the, what Adam, the first man, does, Jesus, the true Adam, the true man, the, man, the God-man, he undoes. Where, where Adam brings death into the world, Christ brings life to those who are wrestling with the fear of death. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. Go over to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. It's in the New Testament. And if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, I'm sure you know as perhaps your own health has been compromised or those of your loved ones, and perhaps you know that there is in fact a real fear in death. You know that there is a great fear as you look at certain things going on with your own family members, and this is the curse of death, which is the curse of sin. So if you experience fear, that is because of sin. But you look here at the wonderful truths of Jesus Christ, and you see the hope that Christ brings to all those who turn and believe. You see there, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... 
that's the stuff of humanity, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see that freedom that comes through Jesus Christ? Freedom that comes through the victory of Christ dying on the cross and then being raised from the dead, defeating sin and death, and then tasting life. And as he tastes life, so his people taste life. Friends, that's how the Christian has hope in God, our protector. Looking to Jesus Christ, who tasted death for them. You see this ultimate hope here? That's how the Christian goes through suffering and even in the face of death, still tastes hope. I read this morning on persecution.com. It speaks of uh, um, martyrs and the persecuted church there. I read of a story in Mexico where this lady uh, trekked into a village inaccessible, by, inaccessible by car. And she went there wanting to preach the gospel. And the government, according to the website, says that they had contracted with another man to attack her for preaching the gospel. And he said, what are you doing here preaching the gospel? Don't you know that nobody wants these words? And he attacked her. And I'll save the gory details uh, for you guys to find out, for the adults to find out and read on the website there. But it ended up where this attacker attacked this woman who was with another person who was not strong and left her debilitated, going to the hospital, bloody and needing stitches. Multiple, multiple stitches. And what she did in the face of this attack, in the face of her suffering, was not give up hope. But it was to cling to Christ who was her hope. So much so that she said when she healed, she just went straight back into the village. And the amazing thing is, is that her very attacker is now attending the church that she was at, hoping to share Jesus Christ with. And is interested in the hope that she has. Amazing! How is it that people face such suffering, earthly suffering, but yet still have hope? The answer is because Christ is their hope. Christ is her hope. I pray that if you are facing some sort of fear, if you are facing some sort of persecution or some sort of ridicule, I pray that the Lord, in fact, would be your hope, just as it was hers, just as he is many people around the world. And did you know who is our standard bearer or our banner? Remember this, this, this memorial that Moses, Moses built here in 1715? And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. It's like Moses in shock saying, with the staff of God, it is like God's judgment is being carried out upon, upon, the, upon their, his enemies. A hand upon the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. But he says there, the Lord is my banner. Friends, did you know that for those who suffer, for all of God's people, Jesus Christ is our banner, banner and our standard pole. Around him we rally, around, around behind him we march. Isaiah 11.10 says, that the Messiah shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him all the nations inquire. Friends, he is the one that we gather around. And he invites you, if you know yourself not to be believed, he invites you to have this hope, to taste this hope by turning from your sins and believing on him. And in him alone you have freedom from fear and hope eternal. 
Well, as people wander in the desert, as they are attacked, even the Lord shows himself to be their protection. As we move to our next section, we see the Lord is to be his people's praise. The Lord is to be his people's praise. If the question the people asked in the first point was, who will be our protection? The this, this second question is, uh, who will be the people's praise? Who will they worship? This is in chapter 18, verses 1 to 12. The fact that God was to be his people's praise is clear from the previous account with God being the, their banner, their standard pole. But the point is made even clearer and with greater clarity in chapter 18, verses 1 to 12, as Moses is reunited with his father-in-law, Jethro, and as he relays everything that the Lord had done for his people. Here, Jethro stands as a stark contrast to the people of Israel. If you remember from previous chapters, or even if you're new to the story, let me just tell you, Israel had made everything that was in Egypt their praise. God had delivered them, but they were desiring meat pots. They desired buttered bread. Everything that Egypt had to offer and not God. That was their praise, not God. So the people really are a delivered, but ultimately disappointed people. And in their own estimation, they are headed to the wrong land of promise. And what they crave is temporary comfort. They crave all of these things at the, extent, at the expense of eternal security. Now contrast Israel's response with Jethro's response. Jethro hears probably from a messenger everything that was going on in relation to the Exodus. And so he goes down along with Moses' wife and Moses' children. There in verse 8, look there, chapter 18. <clears throat> then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. You see there Jethro's response in verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced. Another word, another way to translate this is delighted. Jethro delighted for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And he says there in verse 10, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. His profession there, that the Lord is greater than all gods, it reminds us of what happened in chapter 12, verse 12, where God promised to bring a plague not only on man and beast, but, quote, on all the gods of Egypt, unquote. Remember, battle against, a battle of the king on earth, king of Egypt, against the king of heaven. This is a spiritual war, ultimately. <clears throat> You see the contrast between Jethro, the rejoicing Gentile or a non-Jew, and then the complaining people of Israel? Imagine the rebuke this would have been to any ungodly, self-righteous person of Israel who thought that they deserved salvation, perhaps because of their own ethnicity. Jethro is not of the people of Israel. His people were not given the Abrahamic promises directly, but yet, in God's grace and in God's plan, Jethro comes to praise the Lord of Abraham. What a rebuke to the hard-hearted. Right? You know that you are hard-hearted when you fail to appreciate your own rescue and the rescuer. But Jethro's heart, if you see, it just seems so supple, so soft to the mighty works of the Lord. So much so that he praises the Lord. Now I know of his greatness. 
There's a contrast here between the Gentile of faith and the people of God who lack it. Just look at what is their praise. Jethro praises God. The people of Israel praise their meat pots. Of course, we are indeed like the people of Israel, aren't we? We are so forgetful. We lack appreciation for our own rescue and we lack appreciation for the rescuer. We have experienced salvation in Jesus Christ. We have tasted forgiveness. We've tasted that the Lord is good. We've been adopted into his family. We've been declared righteous, but yet we forget the glories of the Lord and his mighty works in Christ. Some of you now, physically even, are being lulled into sleep. And you know in your own spiritual life, you are being lulled into a spiritual sleep, numb to the things of God. The incarnation of Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection becomes the stuff of the mundane. No wonder the stuff of the world becomes our praise. We are being lulled into spiritual lethargy. Perhaps the things of the world fills your praise today. Friends, if that, if, if that is you, you are in a hazardous intersection in your life right now. It's in these times that we must need to be awake and watchful, but unfortunately, we can confess that oftentimes we are daydreaming about our life before Jesus Christ. We daydream about all the supposed goods and the salvation and the satisfaction offered from then. So friends, is the mighty works of the Lord, are they uh, puny to you? Maybe they hold out the same benefits as, 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 as the level of drunkenness. Maybe they hold out, maybe the works of Jesus Christ are as glorious as maybe a little bit late night internet action. A little bit of materialism. Maybe the mighty works of God are a, a little bit less spectacular than a stock split in your stock portfolio. Maybe a little dividend. Well, friends, the relationship with a very real Christ, for those of you who are single, is less invigorating than the potential of a relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Friends, we all need to exert ourselves to beholding the mighty works of God. And you've got to clear out your schedule to do so, right? You are at a dangerous intersection in your life, and you, friends, need to exert yourself to clear out your schedule to behold the mighty things of God. Some of you, for example, would, would desperately clear out your schedule for a movie premiere. Some of you guys would clear out your schedule to, to, to uh, eat at a special restaurant where you know that a special chef is cooking up something good. And yet when it comes to kindling your relationship with Jesus Christ, eh, you know, you could kind of take it or leave it. You don't really see yourself exerting yourself unto godliness. But friends, we are to do this because, friends, your life, your spiritual life is at stake. Friends, seek the Lord through reading his word and reflecting on it. Through praying the word of God, so to speak, into you. Remind yourself that you are dependent on God through, let's say, fasting as we learned this morning. We need to exhaust ourselves so that we would find rest in Jesus Christ and not in all this other stuff that tempts us. And we do so so the gospel would be fresh again. We battle the lure of sin with reading and reflecting on the powerful, life-giving word of the gospel. So practical suffering. Let's get practical. If you are a husband, say to your wife, Wife, I am taking the kids this morning 
or let's say during the weekday, a weekday of your choice, or Saturday, or maybe next Sunday in the morning, I'll, I'll take care of the kids, I'll do everything, I'll get them ready for church, so that you can go to Starbucks, you get your favorite drink, you pull out your Bible, more importantly, you pull out your journal, and have an extended period of time of reflection and meditating and reading of the Word of God, so that your soul can be happy in the Lord. Husbands, do that. And if you're here today, you can keep me accountable so that I would tell my wife that this very week. As we know that oftentimes there are a lot of things that mothers do where their spiritual life can seem to be drowned out by the mundane. Just as there is for you, brother, who attends work all day. I bet you you are more than eager to carve out your schedule to advance in your career. Well, friends, here we are reminded that we need to carve out time to seek the Lord. Another practical stuff in relation to the Christian and the church. Let me encourage you to clear out your church schedules to come to church. I know I'm obviously uh, you guys are already here. You're doing this. But this is why we clear out our schedules. To sing the Bible. To pray the Bible. To hear the Bible read. To hear the Bible preached. So even do this for vacation. Isn't it interesting that when it comes to vacation, the concept of vacation, we say the first thing that we're going to give up is the church. We say, we're not going to go to church. Instead, we're going to go like camping over here. But we don't quite think about that, at least I find in my own past experience and some of my friends. They say, I'm willing to say, I'm going to take off my work. Uh, sorry. They say, I'm going to take off church to go on vacation. They don't naturally, their gut instinct isn't to say, I'm going to take off work to make sure that uh, I go on vacation. They're not really saying that. So friends, clear out your schedule and make sure that you come to church not legalistically, but come to church to worship God. Where you hear again the mighty works of the Lord. And where you can even see the truths of the Bible in the church. By that I mean the ordinance of the church through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, by the way, is we are going to be celebrating this tonight. Here at church at 5.30. And if you remember, this is a, to picture a little bit <clears throat> when Israel left Egypt for good. God had commanded them to celebrate a Passover meal. And it was a symbol that God had passed over them in judgment. But Jesus, as he comes along before the crucifixion, he takes the Lord's Supper, the Passover, in a different direction. And he basically says that because he himself was going to die on the cross for the sins of his people, he himself was going to receive the judgment. And so his people then would be given salvation. So the Lord's Supper symbolizes all that Christ has won for his people through his own shed blood. Let me encourage you to take the Lord's Supper with the church. Tonight we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper in the evening service. Now I know that it can be hard. I know that it can be hard as evening service can encroach upon your schedules that you've had maybe for 20 or 30 years. But have you ever considered, ever, that encouraging God's people by praying for them in the evening service, and then taking the Lord's Supper together as a church, as we all partake as one body, is worth the inconvenience of your schedule encroachment? And then have you ever considered whose schedule we should arrange our lives by? I mean, whose day is it that the church throughout history has taken the Lord's Supper? It is the Lord's Day! So as I wrestle, as I have wrestled with this in the past, one thing that has reminded me, I think, okay, until I have a day named after me, I will seek to worship the Lord on his day. His schedule is the one that should, that I should arrange my life by, as opposed to my own schedule and the Lord's commands just so happen to suit me. 
if you guys are saying, well, still, there's so much that we can do on the Lord's Day and, and our schedule's messed up. Uh, friends, just keep in mind that in a month there are 720 hours and the Lord's Supper, or sorry, the evening service takes maybe one and a half of those, 720. So if you guys are saying that yeah, I have a genuine schedule problem, uh, come to me. I'm very happy to sit down with you no matter how long it takes and figure out how you can work that hour and a half into your month. I think that will be of benefit to you guys as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Once again, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Another thing you might want to cultivate, or another thing you can do to cultivate a warm heart towards the gospel, is make time to hang out with the so-called Jethro's in the church. Those who have recently come to faith. Or those who, have, those who are growing in the faith. So friends, if that is you, let me speak to the so-called Jethro's here in the con- congregation. If that's you, did you guys know that you encourage us older folks in the faith? You might not think that you have anything to offer because, oh, you know, these people have been Christians for three decades. They know so much more than me. No, you guys have so much to encourage and bring to the table, bring to the congregation. Oftentimes, you guys, did you know that you have so much more of a fresh passion? Oftentimes, you're having hard conversations with your very own family members, conversations that we old Christians sometimes have set down. For many years now, and we need to take up, and we're reminded to take up when we go and hang out with you guys. So when we get together, you know, you remind us to take up these conversations again. You know, another thing, oftentimes you bring a softness of heart and a sensitivity and conviction to sin, which I love. I mean, I've spent time with some of you even this week, and I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate your forthrightness and your effort to seek help and be reminded of the truths of the gospel of grace. That's what the so-called Jethro is being to the congregation. And they bring a subtle rebuke, just as Jethro, I think, brought to uh, the people of Israel and brings to everybody who reads Exodus. The people of Exodus, the people of Israel, in the Exodus, they grumble. But you see Jethro, the singing Gentile, the proclaiming Gentile, man who sings God's praises, rebuking the people of God. So if you are a Christian who finds the stuff of the gospel to be getting a little bit mundane... Let me encourage you to invite a young Christian over to your house. So recently, we have baptized Adrian Chavez. We have baptized Jay Figueroa. We've baptized Alyssa Hernandez. We've baptized Dario Gutierrez. Invite them over and ask them, tell me, because I forget, tell me about all the Lord has done. And tell me all about the Lord has done for you, for your good and for his glory, and how the Lord delivered you out of slavery to sin. And pray, as you do this, pray that you would receive fresh grace for the day. What a wonderful, delightful thing it is to to hear testimonies, and even do so over lunch. Ask people, how did you become a Christian? Well, we can go on and talk more about all the practical things you can do to keep your hearts warm towards Jesus Christ. I leave that for you guys as You can do that over lunch. So we move now to point number three. We review the other points. Point number one, though we wander in dangerous places, the Lord is our protection. Even though our hearts grow cold, point number two, God reminds us that he is to be his people's praise. And he does that through the Gentile uh, Jethro. He wakes us out of spiritual lethargy. And point number three, even though his people need guidance, the Lord will be their prudence. So point number one, we're addressing protection. Point number two, we address praise. And point number three, we address prudence or wisdom. This is found in chapter 18, verse 13 to 17. The Lord will be his people's prudence. In this section, we see Moses struggling to bring order to God's people. 
Well, so the, the, the background here is whatever dispute that they had, whatever wisdom they needed, Israel surrounded Moses for their answers. Verse 13 says, look there, Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Now what he's doing is partially good. He's teaching the people. He's giving them wisdom. He's giving them a judgment in relation to whatever dispute they have. Uh, but it seems that he's what he's doing is actually working to uh, threaten the survival of Israel. Because he's doing it all by himself. He's bearing the responsibility all by himself. So the emotion there that he might feel is, is uh, a fear. He's thinking of perhaps this, this uh, self-reliance that he himself is the one that all of Israel needs to rely on. And maybe there's an urgency there that he feels, feels that with. Moses thinks he knows what he's doing. Jethro comes up to him in verse 15. Look there, he says, what is it that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses, you know, he seems to be justifying himself. Maybe he's gotten so used to teaching that he can't be taught. But look there at verses 15 to 16 and follow along. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them, known, I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So there he's just telling them. He's teaching the word of God to the people. He's making judgments. It seems to be a good thing. He functions like a prophet. Now he's functioning like a judge. But Jethro has greater wisdom than Moses. He detects that even though Moses' teaching was good, his method is what was going awry. It was going to wear him out. It was going to exasperate the people. Look there at 17 to 18. Follow along. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. So he says, look, what you are, he's saying what you were doing is good in terms of teaching, but you taking the responsibility upon your own shoulders is not good. You need other people to do it with you. Look there at verse 19. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them because of the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, he says all of that knowing that he's going to say what he's going to say in 21. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide among themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure it and all the people also will go to their place in peace. So you see what there is there? Here, Jethro just recommends that Moses uh, structure their judging aspect of the life of Israel like they would a military, their military. You would have some soldiers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And so why don't you put judges over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens? And then so they, they're to judge all the small matters. Big matters, they can bring it to me. This might seem like a small matter in terms of having the judges, but, but you have to remember that Anytime where the people of God are in dispute, it's a big deal. Because unity is at stake. And if God's people were to fracture, then they would be like just the, the nations around Israel. You know, they fight amongst themselves. And so the Lord's glory would be marred to the nations. 
But you see how the Lord is providing prudence and wisdom to his people in giving them the judges? I mean, certainly God provides wisdom by giving Moses and the people Jethro, but here the focus is on the fact that there are judges. And and notice here uh, three aspects of these judges. There's a plurality of leadership, number one. There's a plurality of leadership, meaning that they're they're supposed to have more than one judge, not just Moses himself. Just as Moses needed the help of Aaron and Hur to lift his feeble arms above his head, to hold the staff over his own head, so he was to find people to teach God's laws along with him and give God's wisdom to the people. The second thing to note here is that they are to uh, be of godly character. They themselves are to be wise and able men, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, it says. In other words, what he's saying there, these men, these judges and leaders over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, must be morally incorruptible. Men who have a strong moral background, men who love holy things because they love a holy Lord. Third, their wisdom was to be determined by the Lord. With this setup here, the plurality of judges, Moses could then fulfill his task with with his advice. You know, once again in verse 20, he says that they shall, you, Moses, and the judges, is what he's saying, you and the judges that you're going to find, shall tell them about the statutes and the laws and make known the way in which they must walk and what they must do. If you notice there, there's not only religious instruction, but there is ethics as well. Doctrine and what they are to do. And because of these uh, judges here, the people were to see a safe way forward. They were to go to their place in peace. Well, as this applies to us today, you know, since the formation of the church, God has created the office of the elder where men who fear God and who are able to teach, they go about caring for God's people so that we too, the church, would get to our place in peace. Now the position of elder and judge, Old Testament judge, is not the same. There were some differences here. In terms of Old Testament Israel, a number of positions have fallen away in terms of the church. Old Testament as you move to the church. So today, you know, we don't have judges in the church. We do not have prophets in the church. We don't have priests in the church. We don't have kings over the church. These positions have fallen away for the New Testament church. And naturally so, the church is not a physical nation, but a spiritual people comprised of of people of all nations. In the New Testament, we see two official offices in the church, that of elder and that of deacon. And it's fascinating, you know, once again, you don't see Paul, the church planter, telling his understudies like Timothy and Titus, to appoint judges over all the people. He does not say go and appoint priests over the people or submit to the king of Israel. No, he doesn't go about saying that. He just says submit to whatever king is over you. But he does in fact talk about elders and deacons. And for our purposes today, we focus on the elder. If you're new to uh, this terminology, the elder, pastor and elder, they refer to the same office. In fact, in the New Testament, there are three terms that refer to the same office. The terms are elder, pastor, and bishop. And they all refer to the same office of uh, the teaching office of the church, the, the ruling office of the church, the shepherding office of the church. So you have elder, pastor, and you have bishop. In terms of general similarities, we see that there is to be a plurality of elders in the church. And we're not going to spend too much time thinking about these particular things. You can uh, turn to other scripture passages that I can tell you later on. But this was a regular pattern in the New Testament churches. 
When Paul turns up to Titus, he says, appoint elders plural in the church. And the benefits are great. So the pastoral load is distributed to the many, making the task of shepherding less wearisome. The second benefit, pastors are to shepherd one another, according to Acts chapter 20. Elders are sharpened by one another, so their weaknesses are made up for by the strengths of others. In terms of character, we see that New Testament elders are to be men of who can teach the things of God, so they are to be able in teaching, but they are to be men who walk in godliness. 1 Timothy 3, 2 says that the elders must be above reproach, also morally incorruptible. They are, like the Old Testament judge, they are morally incorruptible. They are to be above suspicion. And, of course, they are to be able to teach, as it says in 1 Timothy 3, 2. <clears throat> and this, too, in- requires teaching in relation to what we are to believe as to how we are to behave. Now, as this pertains to this church and other churches, an elder must be a biblically qualified man, a man known for general godliness, a man who is able to teach. Right now, we are in the very irregular position of only having one elder, that is me. And I appreciate those of you guys who show concern about how I am doing personally under the weight of pastoring by myself. So I know some of you brothers, you check in on me. Thank you very much. Uh, you see how, how, we see how uh, weary I'm doing and how I feel, so I love that. I appreciate that care. Uh, but though pastoring is a wonderful thing to give myself to, and a wonderful thing some of you other men should consider giving yourself to, it certainly can be taxing spiritually, emotionally, physically. So just as, chill, just as parents, for example, go to bed with their own children's struggles on their mind, so does the pastor go to bed with all of the sheep struggles on his mind. So imagine here, not just shepherding a family, for me, it's a total family of six, imagining shepherding a family of 50, a family of 60, where concerns literally keep me awake. And I'll tell you this because I want your uh, sympathy or empathy. I just, uh, I tell you this so that you guys would say, wow, how can we lighten the burden of Jeremy? That's a good thing. And if you go to another church, I pray that you men would aspire to be elders yourselves. I know some of you guys are thinking like, okay, since, wow, the shepherd has so much responsibility, I want to be a sheep, and I'm not going to tell the shepherd any of my concerns. That's going to solve the problem. Friends, that actually does not solve the problem. We need, particularly brothers, who say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come alongside the shepherd and say, how can I shepherd alongside of you and bear some of that burden on myself while telling you my own issues and struggles. Thank God, though the task is weighty, I have never once felt wearisome to the point of saying, I never want to preach the gospel anymore. I have never once thought that. Praise God, that's God's grace to me. But uh, nevertheless, it can be taxing. So, brothers, I hope you are growing in your desire to care for those around you. You know that in 1 Timothy 3, it says, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And thank God, I can look over across the congregation, and I know that this is happening. That God is working, according to His grace, to make certain men, to make men here, grow in their godliness. I do not know of one man who is not growing in godliness and heading in the direction of one day taking on more and more and more responsibility of those who are around him. I love that. But brothers, have you ever thought, gosh, you know what? I actually need to pursue eldership in a local church. It is a good thing, Paul says. 
So I hope that you are growing in your desire to lead in your own local church. And if that's you, let me encourage that to make that you. And to say, first, I need to start growing in character. How can I work on that? Remember the, the elder, we see those three, qualifi- those three uh, characteristics there. There should be a plurality of elders. Men should be marked by character. Men should be able to teach. Let me encourage you guys to start with character. Don't start with teaching. Just trust those around you that as you vocalize your own thoughts and as you wield the word in your own personal discipleship, I mean, in some sense, that's teaching. That's a good thing. Focus on that. Don't worry about your public teaching. But focus on character that undergirds all of the teaching because we know that your character can undo what you teach according to what it says in Titus. There are some who claim the gospel of God but yet they undo it, they nullify their teaching by their very actions. So, brothers, let me encourage you guys to focus on character there. If you want to talk more about pursuing eldership, what this might look like over the next couple of years, or over the next five years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years, please, brothers, come and talk to me. And that would be a wonderful thing to do. And the most important thing is, even if you don't have a title, you can be exercising your certain gifts that maybe God has given you in terms of shepherding other people, even right now. And even you ladies can do this. You should not think that just because the Bible says that men should have to men should fill the teaching office of the church, that women therefore should say, ah, forget about shepherding other people. Even though you might not formally shepherd others with the title of a pastor or elder or bishop, nevertheless, you can still be caring for others around you. And that's incredibly useful to the leaders here at this church. To know that there are other women who are doing a great job here uh, of shepherding other people. So take it upon yourselves, please, to say, okay, how can I love everybody around me with the gospel truth? You see that here in this passage. God is teaching us that he should be our everything. We see there that if we're wandering in the desert, you know, as Christians, we do the same thing as we wander to the, not wander, but walk determinedly to the promised land that is heaven. Just like Israel walked to their own land of promise, where there are times that we fear. There are times where we are attacked, most importantly, spiritually. But God comes in and he reminds us that he is our protection. We see as well that, he, that some of us might be tempted towards spiritual lethargy. We forget all the glories of the gospel as we're tempted towards all the stuff that, of our old life. But here we see that Jesus Christ is to be our praise. We're supposed to be awoken to the glories of the gospel again and again and again. And by one another, we help each other worship Jesus Christ as God is our praise. And then last, we see here that in, it, perhaps if we're tempted to, to look around and see, oh no, you know, pastoral leadership is not being fulfilled as best as it could be. Well, that's probably a reality, right? And then we're supposed to, in, in recognition that uh, we all live in a sinful world here, that God ultimately will give us wisdom and his word is to guide all of our relationships here. So praise God that, that even though our situation is not exactly like that of Israel, we nevertheless are to make Christ our center, Christ our Lord, and long for the place where God's rule and reign is made sure, made certainty, made certain in all of its entirety as we go from this land to the next. I pray that the Lord would be our all in the gospel would be the very thing that binds us all together as this is a treacherous journey going from the old land to the new land. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you sustain us 
We thank you, Lord, that in the midst of Israel's physical hunger, in the midst of their fear, in the midst of their spiritual lethargy, in the midst of Moses' desperation, Lord, you answered all of these things in yourself. Lord, we know that you are our ultimate shepherd, and that any elder who would ever serve at this church is not the ultimate shepherd, but we are just under-shepherds. Father, we pray that you would make yourself known to us according to your spirit, so that Christ would be exalted, and so that he would be our satisfaction, even today. Father, we pray that you would help us keep the gospel at the center of this particular church. Father, we pray that you would preserve us, that you wouldn't let us wander away from it, but that you would be central to all of our praise. We thank you, Lord, that we see this happening by your grace. We pray that you would make it be for your glory all the more. In your name we pray. Amen.